This is Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I'm Scott Bertram, and with me is State Representative Andrew Fink from the state's 58th District branch in Hillsdale Counties, and we'll be running in the fall in the new 35th District here in Michigan. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Scott. As you run toward November, and really, I suppose, it's other candidates, not necessarily you considering your district, but this uh, leak of the draft opinion from the Supreme Court on the Dobbs case, the possibility that the Supreme Court will act to overturn the Roe and Casey precedent when it comes to abortion, uh, the governor, other Democrats in the state pointing to this as a big deal and perhaps a game changer when it comes to the November election. How do you see, I hate to be so crass, but abortion politics playing out here in the state? Well, I, I don't think you, you have to consider it crass to ask that question because it's obviously a, uh, an issue that has always been regard, you know, it's regarded as one of the most divisive or whatever. So it drives a lot of the conversation in Michigan. Uh, for the most part, the pro-life perspective that I, and, and, uh, most of my colleagues, or I guess all my colleagues in my caucus, which is most of the, of my colleagues in the, in the house, since we're in the majority, you know, the perspective we carry here is that for the most part, uh, we, we need to protect the the laws that we already have on the books, but Michigan is, as a legal matter, uh, more or less the, the most pro-life state in the country. Absent the Roe versus Wade decision, we would have uh, arguably the most pro-life laws in the country. So it's not something that we need to do. Uh, we, you know, we need to be like drafting up, uh, you know, many pieces of legislation in anticipation of this, if you are a pro-lifer like I am, then you feel comfortable with the laws that we have, more or less. But uh, it's a question of uh, making that case out to the public. So I, it's not something I'm like afraid of. I'm, you know, I'm not concerned about it. I think that there's maybe a little bit of a misunderstanding in, in this, where um, folks think that the enthusiasm of the of the Democrats will rise uh, based on the the Dobbs decision if it does indeed reverse Roe versus Wade. And uh, I guess I just say I don't know why they would be more enthusiastic than pro-lifers. I mean, it it is an issue where uh, if you can get into a good faith discussion about it, which I'm going to be honest, I've I've been surprised at how little good faith seems to be coming from critics of the the leaked opinion, um, because it, it historically it's something that that you, you know you do see you have you have seen sort of some high level argumentation about that at least takes into account the premises that the other side is mm-hmm. bringing to bear, right? And, uh, and that's pretty easy to do and still have a pro-life perspective. And I guess it's just not as easy to do and still have a pro-choice or, or a pro-abortion perspective because we're just not seeing a lot of that. So what we're seeing is that it's a question of, uh, you know, controlling people, controlling uh, women, whatever it is, and, and just ignoring the entire question at hand, which is, is, you know, is the baby inside of the mother a baby? Because if it is, and that leads to conclusions that, uh, uh, you have to confront again, you know, very seriously. And if you ignore that question and you can just focus exclusively on terms like healthcare or whatever for women, uh, you're really not taking the, the debate as seriously as you should if you want to actually, you know, win an argument. The debate is interesting, too, in that the pro-abortion, uh, pro-Roe side, many that I've seen aren't even debating the issue at hand they're going the slippery slope path, which is this opens the door for a ban on interracial marriage in the country. It opens the right. door for a ban on birth control. It's as if the thing they care most about, abortion, isn't bad enough. They have to go down the slippery slope path to, con- to convince or scare people that worse things might be coming. 
I, I find that some of that to be truly bizarre. I mean, not only because as some folks have pointed out like prominent, well, uh, prominent folks associated with this, like Clarence Thomas is in an interracial marriage or even Mitch McConnell is in an interracial marriage. I mean, like the, the idea that like, that's the grand right wing conspiracy is I think pretty insane, but even, uh, and also like it's been some time since I've read the loving versus Virginia case that, uh, found that, uh, Virginia's, uh, prohibition on interracial marriage violated the equal protection uh, uh, clause of the Constitution, but I mean it's not it's not really the same set of reasons or reasoning as uh, the Roe and Casey cases are. So I mean I, I don't it's not even like I can find an intelligible legal argument in that uh, based on on my memory of it. It's just I think it's just completely um, hyperpartisan nonsense. But I mean I guess I'd say like you know again just look at the issue that we're talking about. When you're talking about abortion, the question that is is sort of again that's really raised is like, what is happening if you terminate a pregnancy by killing the baby, uh, by destroying the fetus, uh, which is just a Latin way of saying baby in this case. I mean, it's a way to avoid the 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 issue again. But so w- when you do that, if you're terminating a human life, then again that fo- you know that's where the pro life position flows from, and the fact that you know, at conception, you have uh, a new human being, obviously at the very earliest stages of development, small number of cells, all of that stuff. Um, it doesn't change the question of like who, you know, who that is and, and what uh, what that should mean to us. And that's why people are pro-life. I mean, that the reason people are pro-life is to protect a life. Um, the rhetoric that we're we're seeing, I mean, I don't know. I don't remember if, if uh, it may have been on your Twitter feed that I saw a video of um, of somebody saying, you know, if you're 20 weeks pregnant and you don't feel like carrying it, then uh, with some rough language, just suck the baby out. I mean, that is the kind of horrifying rhetoric that uh, makes makes one think you're really not taking the question seriously. Um, and I, I, so I guess the upshot of all that is I think that if that's going to be the attitude from the, the pro row crowd, that it's actually, you know, it's good to sort of shout your abortion rhetoric. Um, then I don't see why we should think that's going to be a big advantage. Cause I just, I don't, I can't, I, I don't believe that that's where the average person is. Obviously there used to be this uh, rhetoric that was not persuasive, uh, of safe, legal, and rare, but at least sort of try to appeal to sort of a middle of the road uh, person, and that's just not where the left is on this issue anymore. And so I, I don't really see why we have to think that it's going to escalate the number of Democrats at the polls this this fall, because I don't even think I, I just don't think that that kind of rhetoric is really commensurate with where Americans are. I also wonder how much of avoiding the topic and, and moving toward interracial marriage or birth control is avoiding. Uh, a light being shined, shown, upon some facts. Bill Maher, over the weekend on on his show, said until this draft uh, opinion was released and some people started talking about it, he didn't know that European countries have far stricter regulations at abortion than Mm -hmm. America does. He didn't know that more women are pro-life than men are pro-life. He didn't mention this, but I doubt people know that, say, 65%-ish, depending on polling, are in favor of... 15-week abortion bans. Right. How much of changing the topic is trying to avoid focusing on these inconvenient facts when it comes to the cases? Yeah, I mean, let alone, like, I actually saw a video this weekend of a, of a guy who was pro, uh, an abortionist, a pro-abortion doctor, describing what actually happens when you abort, say, a 20- or 22-week-old baby, and 
uh, you would have thought that this guy was a pro-lifer because he was actually just accurately describing what happens, which involves, <laughs> I mean, details that are as gruesome as uh, as you can imagine. Uh, and so I guess, yeah, avoiding those things you normally would think like is, is on, I mean, it is on purpose, avoiding those conversations. Yeah, avoiding the fact that we have a much more liberal abortion regime than Europe, um, avoiding what, what actually happens in the procedure itself, uh, avoiding the, I guess, confronting the, the issue that like, say you were, you are talking about a, a later term abortion and, uh, and we have more families willing to adopt than are able to adopt in the United States right now. I mean, shouldn't that be something that we consider important in looking at a public policy issue like this? Uh, but most of those things are simply avoided. Um, yeah, so Bill Maher pointing all of this out, it, it doesn't really surprise me, I guess, why like why would he have confronted this mm-hmm. stuff? It's not like it's, you know, it's not, I guess, it doesn't surprise me that he hasn't sought it out before, but but it it is a little ridiculous that a guy who follows the news and, and whatnot, you know, only now discovered it. But I guess that's, it. it's a silver lining of the way this thing has come out. State Rep. Andrew Fink with us here on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. Let me ask you two, two, two quick questions before we move on to a different topic. Uh, possibility of some sort of abortion-related ballot question in November. Is that yeah. still possible? As far as I know, they're still out trying to collect signatures for it. Yeah, and it would be an absolutely radical uh, pro-abortion uh, law if it were to be instituted. I mean, if the voters were, if it were to get on the ballot, the voters were to to vote for it, it would be uh, beyond what the, I guess, the contours of, I mean, we were just talking about how America's had a more liberal abortion regime um, than, than Europe. It would be beyond kind of where states in the United States, for the most part, have been. Uh, so it's a real possibility, and if you're a pro-lifer, you should be very careful in selecting which petitions you sign this year. It's easy to be confused by a description of a of a petition. I've probably mentioned to you before, you know, decades ago in Michigan, we had um, competing wolf hunting hmm. petition drives. One was for, one was against, but nobody could tell which was which. I mean, so <laughs> I, I would just say if that's if, if if that's an issue that you care about as much as I do, be very careful in reviewing any petition that you're asked to sign because they can be misdescribed intentionally or unintentionally uh, and you certainly don't want to help put that on the ballot because it would be ridiculous and radical and the free press this past weekend had a front page op-ed on the topic arguing that michigan's economy would tank if roe were returned and and, uh, abortion laws returned to to what they what they would be if that happened Uh, young people would leave the state and abandon the state and it would tank the economy we have economic worries if in michigan if roe is overturned I mean, I guess, first of all, Michigan could hardly lose more young people than we're losing. I mean, our state's been stagnant for 40 years. I know I've ranted about that on here before. Uh, but secondly... She did, she did too, and couldn't connect the dots from both stating in the piece that 30,000 babies were aborted in 2020, and Michigan continues to lose population and is going to lose a congressional seat. I would say... Didn't, didn't yeah. connect the two. Uh, up to 1973, when Roe versus Wade is handed out, Michigan was basically on a boom from, I don't know, 1900 or so on, uh, where we were filling up with people. And that's more or less when we filled up. I mean, the, the mid-70s is basically when our population more or less started to tail off. I mean, in 1980, we had 9.2 million people, and today we have maybe 9.9 or maybe just 10 million. So, uh, it, I mean, like the actual evidence we have in this state itself more or less suggests that that's completely backwards, that when we had our pro-life laws in place, our state was also economically uh, humming. And since Roe versus Wade, I mean, I'm not, 
I'm not actually trying to like draw a connection between these two things with any precision. I'm just saying there's, it's not like we have experiential or, or, uh, obvious data to support that conclusion. When Michigan was the most pro-life in, uh, state in the country, we had a better, uh, trajectory than we have today. State Rep. Andrew Fink with us here on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. Budget bills move, uh, police budget we talked about last time. Uh, you had some provisions in there that were important. What's the House done so far on moving toward a, a budget agreement for the for the coming year? Well, so some of the, actually, there's a relationship here uh, between our discussion of abortion and the budget. Our Health and Human Services budget uh, prohibits funding of Planned Parenthood, which is a, a step that, I mean, it, I guess the the main point here is that Planned Parenthood will tell you that abortions are a small portion or only a you know relatively minor portion of what they do, but they perform more abortions than anyone else. I'm sure that's true in Michigan, although I I only know with certainty that is true nationwide. I I would be very surprised if it's not true here in Michigan as well. Um, and instead prioritizes funding uh, pregnancy resource centers that would actually encourage mothers who are expecting a baby to uh, to kind of get through it uh, without facing killing their baby. Uh, there are other aspects of the budget that I think are really interesting and important. Um, uh, the one that I spoke on on the floor was uh, some recruitment and retention uh, money in the state police budget. Uh, we have a shortage of police officers. Unfortunately, we have a shortage in lots of industries now. Uh, so it's not, it's not only police officers, but uh, departments that would have had dozens of candidates apply for openings uh, in the past are having single digits or even no applicants for openings right now. And I definitely think it relates to the way that policing has been criticized in the mainstream media uh, as a practice. I mean, there was even for a short time this pretty insane idea out there that like the entire concept of police forces arose from uh, like southern, uh, I guess, slave roundups or something like that, which would be gross if it were true but isn't true i mean like obviously there have been versions of police forever um and what we have now is probably better than the old versions that were were more or less uh the same thing as the military but you know we now have people in our communities who provide police services that's the family you know i grew up in a police family living in the community that my dad policed and uh having enough having a a uh, successful and community involved police force, I think requires that you pay police officers in a way that allows them to support a family, be an honored part of an, an integrated part of the community. Um, and so although, you know, generally I'm not, I'm not one for, uh, increasing government spending. I certainly think that if our police officers aren't compensated fairly, um, and competitively with other jobs that intelligent fit, you know, uh, responsible people can go get, uh, then we're going to get worse policing over the course of time. And that's not that's not something that uh, I think is good for anybody in the state because we're going to have some kind of police force. You want it to be high quality. Uh, so those are a couple aspects of the budget that I thought were worth kind of pointing out. Procedurally, we've got uh, our bills, our, our budget bills are through the House. The Senate bills are through the Senate. We'll kind of switch places on those things this week. And the uh, committee chairs and, and whoever else are on the uh, the conference committees will, will conference and try to kind of come up with a unified budget for the legislature. Um, that's obviously kind of step, I guess you could say step three here, getting out of committee being one, getting it out of your own chamber being two, dealing with a conference uh, between the, the chambers being three. And then the fourth step is having something that the governor will either sign or veto. So that's, uh, we're about halfway through the, the process. And um, as we get into the warmer months, that's kind of where we, we 
tend to be, so we're sort of on schedule, but we'll see what happens. I think the Senate bills were somewhere around $76 billion in spending for the for the upcoming budget year. Um, House, I imagine, is in the same ballpark. How, how does that compare to, say, where we were pre-pandemic state spending? Yeah, the numbers are still higher uh, based, based largely on the federal money that didn't exist two years ago. Um, and yeah, so the, the, the state, the, or the, the house budget is, I think a couple billion dollars different from the Senate budget, but out of 70 something. So it's yes, n- not very different. Um, and that's, you know, again, it's like, it's something that is, is not, it's not necessarily an ideal circumstance, uh, but Congress having appropriated that money, uh, I don't, I can't articulate a reason why Michigan shouldn't, uh, spend its portion of that on the infrastructure, on the, uh, upgrades that we need in our state. Uh, the alternative is essentially to let other states spend that money because that's what will happen. And so we kind of have this extra money to tr- try to find a responsible way to deal with, which is not always easy. I think, um, you know, we did do a big infrastructure package. I think we talked about a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. It's related to the, to, again, to this kind of extra federal money. Um, and it's not, it's not an easy problem to solve, but I, I'm not one to say that our citizens should, who are going to be billed for this money in the future um, shouldn't also benefit from it. Governor Gretchen Whitmer recently vetoing uh, a bill dealing with voter registration on the application. It would have included a line that, uh, you can correct me, but essentially said, I attest, but I understand that trying to vote multiple times in an election is illegal. And she vetoed a bill that would have put that line on registration applications. Why would we want to give potential voters who are going to become voters less information about the rules when it comes to governing Michigan's elections? I mean, I guess like if I were going to try to answer that question for her, I suppose the best defense would be something like, uh, you know, you don't want to kind of scare people into not taking action. I assume is what she said, which I just think is totally ridiculous. I mean, it is totally ridiculous. People don't accidentally go around voting a couple of times uh, very often, giving them the heads up that it's a felony to do so is not going to like scare people into not voting at all. It's mm-hmm. pretty simple to not vote more than once. When there's been as much, I mean, I mean, this is a long time ago, but you probably remember the uh, the line from uh, I think it was a California California Congresswoman. You don't need papers for voting. Mm. Uh, when you have I mean, you're the one from Chicago, early and often, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. we have all these kind of of uh, colloquial sort of things out there about the nature of voting in our country, and I think I think taking you know taking seriously the communication to the voters that while we protect everyone's right to vote, you know, legally, uh, voting illegally undermines the entire concept of, uh, of democracy and a democratic Republic. Um, I, I guess I just think that's, uh, it's giving, giving folks more information about that rather than less is common sense. And the governor's refusal to do that is more of her, game playing. I mean, I know we've talked about this in other election bills over and over again, but uh, just really not taking the issue seriously. Actually, can I go back a little bit to our first discussion? It relates here. There's There's been a lot of um, tossing around in the in the context of this uh, possible, and by the way, let's not count our chickens before they hatch, possible re- reversal of uh, Roe versus Wade in the Dobbs case. You've seen the word democracy come up a lot. Critics of the draft of the leaked draft opinion are saying like, well, so much for democracy. Um, in this, in that case, I mean, that it's literally the opposite of the way that opinion would appears to be set up, right? Right. 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 Which is to allow states to democ- democratically 
make that decision. And I sometimes hear um, folks, even on my side of the aisle, kind of uh, bristle at the idea of calling us a democracy. Well, we have, we, I mean, looking at the what that word means, uh, I, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I know that that's a Greek word that essentially means rule of the people. You know, the demos is the people and whatever crossy or, uh, you know, aristocracy or, or uh, oligarchy, all these words are kind of related, right? So democracy, rule of the people, um, in order to take that kind of thing seriously, in order to say, you know, we believe in democracy, you ought to, you ought to sort of say, and so we believe that it has to be done according to the law mm-hmm. because um, everyone, I mean, everyone will talk about, well, a majority is on my side on this issue or, or whatnot. But we live in a constitutional democracy where we form our majorities according to law and we expect them to behave according to the constitution that was adopted, you know, that's adopted to sort of be the, the way in which we operate our democracy. And again, in our country, democracy is basically just about the elections themselves. And then mm-hmm. we, we have our representatives or senators or whatever, different, different levels of government kind of handle the day to day. So we don't do direct democracy on, on issues very much, although we talked about petition drive today. Uh, but the overall point is like these, these things are connected in that respecting the people's right to kind of form their policy choices is natural in a, in a country where the citizen is the fundamental element of the government, but uh, also doing it according to the laws, according to the constitution, like that's the only way we can sustain it and sort of stick together Mm -hmm. because we've agreed about how we're going to go about doing our politics. And so that's the connection I see between several of these things. We talked about this petition drive abortion generally, uh, these these voter laws, if we're not willing to sort of stick together and do things according to the rule of law, according to the the powers that we've actually delegated to the legislatures or, or whatnot through our constitution, um, then we're kind of living a lie. And if we don't get that right, then we're going to be in trouble. State Representative Andrew Fink. For more, repthink.com, repthink.com. 58th District here in Michigan, Branch and Hillsdale Counties, running in the 35th District primary in August, general election in November. State Rep. Andrew Fink, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Scott.